0: All right, gentlemen, thank you for your patience here. All right, good evening, good to see you all. Thank you. I hope that uh, this session, this series has been helpful for you, and I know that there's been a lot thrown at you in the last four weeks, and there's a lot of questions that have been generated. So, didn't have very many questions until just a few last few days. They've been pouring in, so we should have a sufficient amount. And if we don't, we, we may turn the mic loose. I know that's always dangerous to do, but we may turn a mic loose, have an open mic, and uh, if there's some questions that um, maybe some of the answers that I give generate more questions and you want to follow up on that. So that, that might be possible. So I do have several questions here. and Let me just begin by opening us with a word of prayer. Father, it's been good to be with you and these men together as brothers in Christ who can open your word freely and learn, and your Holy Spirit who ministers to us and indwells us and bonds us together in the body of Christ, we are thankful for what we have, the riches we have in Christ, that we are not poor, we are exceedingly wealthy when it comes to spiritual riches. We thank you for blessing us in so many ways. Thank you for this church, a faithful ministry of decade after decade of, of preaching your word. And we just pray, Lord, that you would continue to bless this pulpit and all those who teach here, all those who lead as shepherds, and help us as men to continue to develop so that we might be shepherds in our homes and leaders at work and faithful stewards of what you have entrusted to us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, so I have quite a, a potpourri of questions. So, Dr. Neil, um, So what, I'm just going to try to get the ball rolling, and then we'll go from there. And I'm just going to start off with a question that, uh, as a result of last week, are, are churches that practice tithing in error? So I, I think there's a way to answer that. Um, initially, you would say, no, not necessarily. I know that there are churches who do make tithing a part of the covenant. When you join the church, you become a member of it. Tithing may be a part of that covenant. And so you, then you, therefore, would obligate yourself to tithing if you join that church, that particular church. Now, are they an error? No, I don't think so. It may just be the fact that there's not been a proper understanding or proper teaching of what tithing is and how it applies or does not apply to the church age. So I don't think that they are an error unless there is some sort of, of underlying push or desire to raise some type of wealth for the church or the pastor um, those would not be solid evangelical churches anyway, but there's definitely the practice in, in liberal or Protestant liberal churches that try to push on people this practice of tithing to such a degree that it's very forceful. And that, that would be wrong. That would be error. So that's how I would answer that question. Another question, and I think this is very important, several questions along these lines what is the biblical view regarding the lottery another one says does the bible prohibit gambling now this is pretty big in light of the recent supreme court decision just this past week to allow sports gambling in all 50 states this is going to be a it's going to be a serious blow to families So what's the biblical view of the lottery? Um, You'd be surprised, you'd be shocked at how much money flows through gambling institutions on an annual basis. One study study said that as much as one-third of a nation's money supply moves through the gambling industry each year. That is staggering. Gambling, the entire... Enterprise of gambling is really opposed to the moral worldview that we find in God's Word. Okay? There's a biblical worldview, and this biblical worldview does not have room for an understanding where the Christian should gamble or the Christian should play the lottery. What is the motivator? What is the central motivation Yeah, Dr. Neal said it here. What's the central motivation for those who pursue gambling or the lottery? It's typically greed. Typically driven by greed. The Bible has much to say about greed. You think of Judas and his greed and where that led him for his 30 pieces of silver. Think of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 4. Their desire to keep back some of the money and present as if they had presented all the money at the feet of the apostles. The rich young ruler and his desire for his worldly possessions that kept him from coming to salvation. If you have a stewardship mentality, you're going to say, this isn't mine to play with, right? It is not mine to play with. This... Everything that I have, everything that I own belongs to the Lord. And we don't throw that to the wind. We don't throw that to chance. That's the opposite of a biblical worldview of stewardship, a biblical worldview of the sovereignty of God in all things. You're basically saying, I'm putting my money at the feet of chance. I'm rolling the dice, black or red. Okay, well, it's only a dollar. Well, guess what? Those states that have legalized gambling, you know what this is really happening there? The state is preying on the weakest. The state is preying on the weakest citizens. Tell me where you can go now and buy a lottery ticket. Where are these places most often found? In the wealthy areas of the city? The poor parts of the city, right? That's where we find them, in the poorer parts of the city. This is a regressive tax on the poor. This is the poor paying more, and they don't even maybe necessarily realize that this is what is happening to them. The poor are paying higher and higher percentage through the lottery. And the lottery most often destroys those who win it. And gambling just fuels greed, right? Now, don't tell me, you know, you go up to that, pull that slot or sit it down at the table, that you're not thinking in your mind, maybe I will hit it big. Just maybe. Oh, and then if I hit it big, I'm going to give it all to charity. I'm going to use this for the Lord. Well, Again, you are basing your worldview on the system of chance rather than on God's sovereignty. There is no place for luck in the Christian worldview. And this is also a direct attack on the work ethic that we've spoken of the past few weeks, the desire to get rich quick. Scripture has a lot to say about that. trying to think of a, um, I have a different passage open here that I'll, I'll come to. So, does the Bible directly prohibit these things? No, I think through um, biblical reasoning, principles, we come to understand that this is not what God would have for us. And uh, someone also wrote, well, gambling, and they compared it to a high-risk investment. You can, there's a spectrum when it comes to investing. Spectrum from very low risk, safe investments to very high risk investments, okay? And those very high risk investments that are on the, the, the extreme end of the spectrum can be very close to gambling, okay? So just because you call it a high risk investment doesn't mean it's not gambling. You could be tossing your money to the wind as well in that situation. So you've got to weigh the the risk-reward, and you've got a way, your understanding of, of God's sovereignty, of God's desire, how do we propose to you that we are to earn money? It is through work, through saving, through wise investing. It may come through an inheritance. But those are just some, some remarks that uh, I hope that helps, and just the fact that gambling and lotteries prey on those who are most desperate, and they tend to damage the lives of the people who cannot afford it. Okay, so just be very careful. You may say, "Oh, I just play you know a few slots when I go to Vegas and just visiting," and you know, just be very careful with that. Be very careful with that. Be wise and just take your worldview with you everywhere you go and practice that biblical worldview. So that's tithing and uh, gambling. Any maybe follow-up questions that I could answer just regarding gambling and lottery, because I won't, probably won't spend any more time on it. Okay, I think, I think we covered it. Do we have a follow up? Oh, we do have a follow up. Well, Just a minute. Let's get the.
1: Uh, it's basically microphone. a follow up to this thing about tithing. Uh, uh, I uh, once heard John MacArthur talk about tithing, and uh, uh, he mentioned that Abraham, when he tied, it, it was a willing, he did it willingly. When Jacob uh, tied, he put some. He prefaced something before it. It wasn't exactly like, God, if you'll do this for me, then I'll tithe. And as far as I understand it, uh, tithing was meant for that generation of Israelites. And if today churches want to tithe, then they need to also practice not just doing the first tithe, but the second tithe and the third tithe, you know. And, 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 And when the Gentiles converted to Christianity, they were never told to tithe. You know, they were told four things to do, right? Don't mess around with blood, you know, and for one, you know, but that's something you, you could check into if you, you know. But I, that, that's what I understand. Yes, and, it, and last week's,
0: I'm not sure if you were here for last week's, but that, that is the topic we covered last week. We, we, well, thank you for the reminders for us, yes. So last week, if you want to listen to the, I covered tithing. Um, and then the understanding of how the New Testament believer is to be a generous giver, right? Sacrificial, okay? All right, good question. Here's another question was, uh, and this has come up more than once as well. Can you share about reverse mortgages? I don't know how many of you are familiar with reverse mortgages. Some of you are, some of you are not. Basically, reverse mortgage is a type of home equity loan that people who are 62 years of age or older will take out equity from their home and convert it to cash through a bank, through a process of of an application. And you have to go through all the underwriting. Um, They're not gonna give you a a really high percentage. It's typically for people with a lot of equity in their home or very, very low mortgage. And they can pull out that equity and, and either pay off the mortgage and not have payments any longer, or they can use that, those funds for whatever they want. Uh, typically the reverse mortgage is, would be a last resort if you are in dire straits and, and you cannot meet your cash flow needs and needs. I would wanna emphasize needs. Someone who uh, understands that, hey, the, the home that I had planned to maybe give to my children after I pass away, may not be there for them. Because when I die, then that, that home equity loan or that reverse mortgage has to be paid off. There are significant costs involved, closing costs, probably even higher than you would on a typical mortgage. You're typically gonna pay a higher percentage rate as well. So it's really for those individuals who don't have anything to pass on to any heirs and don't have sufficient income to meet their needs but they do have a lot of equity in their home. It allows them to tap into that. But it's a, an expensive proposition and shouldn't be um, taken into, taken, entered into lightly. And you also are required to get uh, some financial counseling before you go into that. So, yes, Ron. Yes, you have to be over age 62 in order to qualify for a reverse mortgage. So I know there are a few questions about that. Hopefully that helps. All right, next question. Uh, someone said, "You know, I have several months worth of salary in the bank for my emergency fund. Is there a place where I can park my money, basically, for more than what I would get at the typical bank?" And I would say, "Yes, there is." And this person also asked, "Well, I also want access to it. It has to be liquid. Liquid funds." Well, there's many online savings accounts today, they're not yielding a ton, but they're yielding more than your typical 0.1% at the local bank. So you can go to a place like bankrate.com and find out what the latest rates are for online banking. A place like uh, Capital One has an account that's paying about 1.6%. Ally, Barclays, all these are banks, legitimate banks that are FDIC insured. So, yes, you can earn between, you know, maybe 1.6, 1.7, 1.8%, maybe even up to 2%, on those liquid funds. But we need to make sure we have a proper understanding of what an emergency fund is. An emergency fund is as financial planners would define it, between three to six months, not of income but three to six months of expenses. What are your expenses for three to six months? Depending on the um, stability of your job, depending on whether you have one or two incomes, a person with an in, un, very in, a job with instability may need six months or more of income, of, of expenses set aside in an emergency fund. A person with a much more stable longevity in their position, stable position, may not need as much. And what that emergency funds are for, for a rainy day, if something happens where there is a significant expense or a job loss, that is meant to help bridge you between jobs, is is there to help with extraordinary expenses that may come up that you are, are not prepared for in any other way. But it needs to be liquid, so it needs to be accessible. And anything that's liquid and accessible is not going to earn a high rate of return. Right? So don't expect to earn a really high rate of return, but you can expect to earn now. I think these rates are, are edging up a little bit as the Fed raises interest rates. A follow up question here yeah, um, Are you talking about CDs when you talk about those, or how do you feel about CDs? The question was Are you talking about CDs when you talk about those? No, these are fully liquid. You're not engaged for any time period, 3, 6, 12 months. Um, CDs can offer up over 2% now, but that's not so significant that you're going to necessarily be better off with a CD. But you are tying your money up for a certain period of time with a CD because there are penalties for early withdrawal on that. So having... Liquid funds in a savings account like this, it is savings. You can link it right to your checking account. You need to transfer back and forth. You can do that electronically over most apps, bank apps. You can do that or a phone call, however you'd like to. But it's very accessible, so it needs to be liquid. Now, nothing wrong with CDs. If you want to put some money for a longer term, tie it up for a little bit, but rates are just very low right at the present time for CDs. Okay. All right, good question. All right, someone else? Um, Another question here, kind of a follow-up. So this person, and this is pretty much unheard of these days, but has a 1.9% 30-year fixed-rate mortgage. (laughs) Everybody's going, no way. (laughs) Yeah, so the question is, well, should I pay down my mortgage if I have the means? I have additional funds available. I have my emergency funds set aside. Should I pay down the mortgage or should I take those extra funds and invest them elsewhere? Well, really, it's a a preference issue. But if you just want to look at the finances of it, okay, if I'm paying 1.9% interest over here on my mortgage and if I can earn three, four, 5% 5% over here, maybe on a longer term investment, which am I gonna choose? Three, four, five. Yeah, I'm gonna choose just financially speaking to pursue the three, four or five, anything higher than the 1.9, right? Because if I pay down the mortgage, basically I'm, I'm earning that 1.9% versus earning something more elsewhere. Now you gotta be wise with what you're pursuing That may be three, four, five, six percent, and understand that those are more for long term investments. Okay? But purely from a financial standpoint, yeah, it would make sense to invest in something that would earn you a higher rate than what you're paying on your mortgage. But there are those who have the means to pay off their mortgage, and they would maybe prefer, one spouse would prefer to invest while the other spouse says, no, I would really feel more comfortable if we just paid down that mortgage, paid it down more quickly. And so they make the decision. I, I know a person who had a 1.9% rate mortgage on his home, but his wife just said, I just don't feel comfortable. Let's just pay it off. We have the funds available. Let's pay off the mortgage. So they made that decision. And that person is a financial advisor. So. It's not always purely about what the numbers say. It may be about preference and peace of mind. And for that couple, it was peace of mind for the wife. So they chose to make that decision. But yes, certainly if you, can, if you um, are able to earn a higher rate of interest than you're paying on your mortgage, that can be a wise thing to do. Right? Just as long as you're able to meet your obligations to pay down your mortgage and every other obligation that you have. You've got your emergency funds set aside. No problem with that. Another question. I think this was raised during the uh, credit and debt session. So what's wrong with a, uh, is there anything wrong with a 0% interest credit card? No, nothing wrong with a 0% interest card, but someday that's going to come due, right? Someday it's going to jump really high, if you have the means to pay it, pay it. You're still obligated. 0%, 15%, 5%, doesn't matter. You're still obligated to pay that debt. You're still in debt, right? And we've talked about all the warnings that Scripture does give us about debt. So yeah, there's nothing wrong with that, but I know people who will transfer from one zero interest to the next zero interest to the next zero interest. They're not making any dent in the actual principle That they should be paying down on their credit card. That's just putting off the inevitable, kicking the can down the road. Don't do it. Just pay down the debt. Pay your obligations as they are they come due. Next question is: what does scripture say about an inheritance? Okay, we do have this in Proverbs 3, uh, Proverbs 13, sorry. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, and the wealth of the cinder is 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 uh, stored up for the righteous. So, does that mean that it's biblical for us, and we should pursue leaving an inheritance for our children's children, so for our grand- grandchildren? I think the principle of this is: if you are practicing wise stewardship, and if you pass that along. To your children, and they pass that along to their children, there will be something left because everyone is passing down the stewardship principles, all right? Uh, I've heard it said this way, I'll never know what kind of parent I've been until my children have children, and we'll see how they turn out. So if I am being wise with what I am maybe setting aside, maybe I will have an inheritance for my children, but it's really the wisdom principles that I want to pass on to them, the stewardship principles that I want to pass on to them so that they don't become the one, the wealth of the sinner that's stored up for the righteous. They don't become foolish. They are practicing the same principles that their father and grandfather was practicing. So you want to pass that on. That's the legacy we want to leave is a stewardship legacy. You don't want your practice of stewardship to stop with you. You want it to go on with your children. Proverbs 20, 21 says, an inheritance gained hurriedly at the beginning will not be blessed in the end. So an inheritance can be a blessing or it can be a curse. Passing on an inheritance to A foolish child or a foolish grandchild is foolish of those who saved it up for them. That is not wise. You're just handing over um, a life of destruction, laziness, not the pursuit of the work ethic that we've discussed. And there is a section in in the, the extended notes on this so you want to be, take a look at that. But I hope that helps answer that question, because people are often wondering, man, I, I think the, the biblical thing for me to do is I must pass on an inheritance to my grandchildren. But I don't think that's necessarily what the focus of that is. It is passing on wisdom, rich. So Rich was saying the the prodigal son and receiving an accelerated inheritance, we saw an inheritance like that passed on to a foolish, foolish child, what that did to that son, right? It really destroyed him. And we know that the father was gracious and accepted him back and brought him back with joy and celebrated when he returned, but he had some hard lessons to learn in the process. Question on uh, buying life insurance. Is buying life insurance a wise thing to do? If so, when to? When to do it? When I'm older? When I'm younger? There is a section on this also in the extended notes, section five, a few pages on this. But uh, we have to go back to and ask ourselves a very basic question What is the purpose of life insurance? I mean, that question often just gets swept aside when considering life insurance and the people who purchase it. They don't necessarily always know why they're purchasing or what they're doing it for. Um, but the purpose of life insurance is provision in case of the possibility of early death for a family. If I'm single and I have no family to care for, why do I need life insurance? Maybe you need something a little for a burial or something like that to handle those kinds of expenses, but what do I need life insurance for? Who am I providing for? Life insurance is not to make others wealthy. I know it's often used for that. It can be used for that. There are certainly purposes, times, places for life insurance in estate planning to pay for estate taxes that maybe due but those are exceptionally high net worth individuals who have to deal with that kind of of issue obviously it's when you're younger it's cheaper for life insurance there's always the debate well do i buy term life insurance or do i buy cash value life insurance some type of whole life variable life and that's, that's a debate that will continue to be around. I'm of the uh, perspective that's just buy the insurance for what you need it for. When I was young and newly married and we started to have a family, we, I purchased life insurance, term insurance, for a certain period of time. Now, I realize when that period of time is up, my premiums are going to go through the roof. But hopefully by that time, the need for life insurance has been greatly diminished. As my kids have grown up and they will leave the home, hopefully I'm not buying life insurance to provide for them because they are out in the world now earning their own way. But there may be an, a need for, uh, to pay off the mortgage, you know, something like that if, if kids are out of the home and there's still mortgage in the house. So you're wanting to provide for those you would leave behind. You're not necessarily desiring to make them wealthy. Um, And cash value life insurance is expensive. There's a lot of expenses within cash value life insurance. And uh, there's probably some uh, insurance agents in here, and they'll give me a good smackdown later. But um, I'm not opposed to it. I know there's a place and there's a time for that. But life insurance... When you need it is when, mainly when you're young, small children, provide for the family. The Lord is your your protector. We cannot protect ourselves from everything in this life with insurance. I know it seems like there's insurance for every conceivable possibility, right? For everything under the sun, you can buy some form of, of insurance, But you have to ask yourself, what is really the purpose of insurance? And is it necessary? Do I need it? And for what time period? Typically, it's a temporary need. Right? Any follow-up questions for that, for life insurance? Okay. There's several questions on uh, getting out of debt. How do I prioritize? What do I do if I'm living paycheck to paycheck? How do I begin this journey, this process? Well, I do want to take you to, if I can uh, get to it here in my notes. And while I'm uh, scrolling here, there's also a question of uh, Dave Ramsey, and I know that uh, he's very popular today, and because of that, I took a, a time period, I, I listened to his, his uh, podcast for a year, I read his book, The Total Money Makeover. Um, and I found him to have some, some good basic principles. And if you need a lot of motivation to get out of debt, he's a very good motivator when it comes to getting out of debt. Sorry, this is taking me a little bit here. There it is. So he's very highly motivational. Uh, when I listen to him on the podcast... One of the issues that I continually noticed, observed, was that he's very prideful in how he treats people. He often puts people down. His is a for-profit organization, so he's in it to make money and to sell you something, sell you some kind of service, some kind of book, plan for profit. So just be aware of that. Um, As I said, he's very highly motivational when it comes to getting out of debt. I think he has some good steps, and I've taken some of his steps here that we will go over. But here's a a good plan for getting out of debt. And again, this is in the extended notes, so everyone should have accessibility to this. Okay? Obviously, the first thing when, when you are desiring to get out of debt would be to pray. You need to get down on your knees and seek the Lord's wisdom, seek the Lord's help. You need to confess any sins that led you to this position where you are. Seek the Lord's mercy, and he he is merciful. And just commit yourself to him and ask for his help, desiring to get out of debt. So... Very basic, right? That's where we start. We start by seeking the Lord's help. Number two, live within your means. Randy Alcorn writes this here. Our name is on God's account. We have unrestricted access to it, a privilege that is subject to abuse. As his money managers, God trusts us to set our own salaries. We draw needed funds from his wealth to pay our living expenses. One of the central spiritual decisions is determining what is a reasonable, reasonable amount to live on. Whatever that amount is, and it will legitimately vary from person to person, we shouldn't hoard or spend the excess. After all, it's his and not ours. And he has something to say about where to put it. It goes back to that principle of understanding that the Lord owns everything. Right? And he is sovereign, and he understands where we, how we can get ourselves into the situations we get into. But you've got to have a mindset, all right? Here's what the Lord's provided for me. This is my means. This is the income I have. And if you don't have an income and desire to earn an income, we've talked about pursuing, pursuing work, right? But let's say you, you have a job, you have this amount of means. You have to live under that. You just have to. There's no magic formula. No silver bullet. This is what you have. You must spend less than that. You cannot spend more than that and sustain that for very long. Right? So you must learn to live within your means. A lot of people have no idea where their money's going every month. They have no idea what's going on with their money. But you need to have that perspective. I am going to live within my means. I'm going to live under. And I know a lot of, there's a lot of questions here saying, hey, I'm living paycheck to paycheck. How do I get out of this cycle? Again, no magic formula to it. You have to live within your means. You have a certain amount of income. Your expenses must be less than that. You've gotta figure a way out that there is some sort of gap created so that you're beginning some sort of positive cash flow to savings, okay? And, And how can we do that? One next step would be list everything you own. List every asset you have. There may be some items that can help kickstart your debt reduction plan by selling those items, getting rid of them. There's a great story um, about this Harvard graduate who paid off like $90,000 in an amazing amount of time just because he wanted to get rid of his his debt, student debt. So you can read about his story. Joe Mihalik. Some pretty radical steps. Go to no and read about it. But list everything that you own, sell some things that you do not need, and kickstart your debt reduction plan. Next, list everything that you owe your mortgage, credit card balances, any other loans, personal loans, and use that list to establish a priority for your debt reduction and elimination plan. Okay, here's what I own. What can I get rid of? What can I help start this kickstart this uh, debt reduction plan with? Next, and this is what I do in the course when I teach this full course, number five here, track your expenses. Okay, as I said earlier, most people don't know where all their money's going. All right. Take a little notepad if you're so inclined to the old method of pen and paper. Take a little notepad with you everywhere you go for the next 30 days and record every single penny that you spend. Record it. Where is, you've got to know where your money is going. Record every penny that you spend over the next 30 days. You can also f- find apps If you want to do that on your smartphone, but you can can just track this much here, this much here, this much here, and you may be shocked at the end of the month and find out, wow, I didn't know I spent that much on Starbucks, or I didn't know I spent this much on this entertainment over here or eating out, okay? So you're tracking where the money's going. You've got to know where it's going. Okay? So track your expenses, then categorize those things. Place them into categories, budgeting categories, entertainment, laundry, all the housing expenses, automobile expenses, everything. Categorize those. Then you need to develop a budget. People don't like that word. Okay, let's call it a spending plan. You've got to develop a plan for what you're going to do with these funds. And as we said, the priority are long. Number one is giving. Second is saving. And then spending. You've got to create that buffer. You've got to find somewhere where you are spending that you can cut down, that you can cut back. Somewhere. There's got to be some discretionary funds somewhere that you can now take and throw towards your debt. Okay? And so just remember, Psalm 37, uh, 10 here, the the wicked borrows and does not pay back. You've got to have that priority that I'm going to get out of debt because it's the right thing to do. And maybe this is a good time here to, to answer the questions about bankruptcy. You know, one question was, hey, I've, Um, I would like to know, you know, what's the proper perspective on bankruptcy? Well, personal bankruptcy, there's basically two types. You've got Chapter 7, you can file for Chapter 7 bankruptcy, or Chapter 13. Chapter 7 is where you basically take whatever liquid assets you have, cash, checking, savings accounts, take that, and that is paid towards your debts. And the rest of it is discharged. You're no longer responsible to pay that off. Chapter 13 is where there's a three- to five-year repayment plan where over three to five years, you're paying off as much of that debt as possible. But then at the end of that time, whatever's, if there's still debt remaining, it is typically discharged. Uh, it would be very rare where I would advise someone to take that route. That would be an absolute last, last, last final resort if you are in such dire straits. And, and um, at my firm, we, we uh, came across someone who came to us for help. And we, just, we came to this final conclusion. We said, this is not something that we typically recommend, but there just doesn't seem to be any way for you out of this other than to declare bankruptcy. Again, I wouldn't, that's just not a typical response. And it turns out that uh, that person's, shortly thereafter, that person's father passed away and left them an inheritance that helped get them out of that situation without having to declare bankruptcy. So, I mean, it certainly was a bittersweet thing to lose a father, of course, but that father had some provision for his son and his family after he passed. And so they were able to to take care of that. Dylan? Are you
1: talking about chapter 15
0: specifically or both? I'm talking about chapter 13. I mentioned chapter 7 and chapter 13. So I think chapter 7 is the very, very least advisable because you're basically saying, I'm not going to pay back. I have no intention of paying back what I owe. Whereas chapter 13 there is the desire to pay it back and the attempt to pay it back with at least some sort of of repayment plan. And that's what you would desire. Before that, I I would advise, and we did advise this person, you need to contact everyone you've borrowed money from and try to work out some sort of plan, some kind of plan. Maybe there would be some debt forgiveness from one company a payment plan from another, do whatever you can. But a lot of people aren't willing to humble themselves at that point and say, hey, I need to go to every one of my lenders that I borrowed money from and talk to them, describe the situation, and see if there'd be any way you can work that out. But I would say that's just a very last, last, final resort um, for someone who's in desperate, desperate situation and there's just doesn't appear to be any other way out of it. Okay? So even when you're in debt, you should, and this another question came up of hey, you know, if I have to pay my mortgage or give to the Lord, what do I do? Well I think okay, as long you need to meet that obligation of paying your mortgage, because the wicked borrows and doesn't pay back. You don't want to be in that category. You do need to pay that mortgage. You have that obligation. But if there's just even an extra little bit, right, that that you can give to the church, whether that's $5 or $10 or whatever it is, try not to completely stop the practice of giving. Realize what has gotten you into the situation. Are you living beyond your means? Did you buy too much house? Did you buy too much car? Are these payments more than you can handle? And seek this, a plan like this to follow and get out of debt. Okay? The faster you can get out of debt, the more you're going to be freed up to give. But you've got to meet that obligation because you have, you have, have made that agreement with whoever you borrowed the money from. And it is a moral issue for you to pay back that money. But try to practice even the smallest amount that you can to just show that desire. Lord, I do want to give. I've gotten myself in this predicament. I've put myself in this situation, but I want to be able to get out of it. So, Lord, help me. And I just want to give a little bit. I know this is all yours. I know that I've gotten in this situation but I do want to practice giving, even in the midst of, of repaying debt. So don't completely abandon giving, but make sure you also meet your obligations. Okay, so continue to give, even if it's a very small amount. And if, if that, there's a buffer created to where you've pared down your expenses, maybe you're living on a subsistence income. I mean, very little. But start to save a little bit. And it, it, it's going to be an individual question. I know there's people out here who say, well, what about this situation? And what about this situation? And this is all the income I have. And this is... That's, that's a one-on-one conversation that you would have to have with me or with another financial counselor. But you've got to save a little bit. You've got to cut your spending. You've got to live within your means. You've got to create a buffer. Or you're never going to make progress on this. Okay? So priority of giving, saving, and then spending. Living within your means. Okay, so now I've I've gathered up things that I can sell, I've sold them. I'm starting to pay down my debt. I've pared back my expenses. I'm trying to live within my means. Well, before you really begin the full debt reduction process, remember in this, the whole scenario, you are paying at least your minimum payments that you are obligated to pay. But save a mini emergency fund. Try to save up $1,000 before you try to hit the debt. Okay, So you're paying your, your minimum payments. You found a little buffer. Try to save and put thousand dollars in the bank. Why? Because something is going to happen. Dishwashers going to go out. Now, if it does, you've got two right here, right? But refrigerator, car needs repairing. You've got that little buffer there. Otherwise, what are you going to use to repair the auto car? The, to repair your automobile. You're going to use a credit card, right? Some form of debt. And you're just going to be right back in that cycle. So you've got to try to save a little buffer. And $1,000 is, is maybe a good target there. Okay? Now, the, the, then after you have that uh, little buffer, you then develop a plan to pay off your consumer debt. Now, there's a couple of methods you can use. Debt snowball debt avalanche. Let me describe those to you. So I've got my, all my debts listed. Got any personal debts, credit cards, mortgage, student loans, auto loans, any loans, other loans that I have. I have those all listed. Where do I start? If I'm making payments on all of them, I'm making the minimum payments on my credit card. I, I got to pay the mortgage making the car payments, where do I start if I have built into my income now a buffer that I can throw towards debt? Yeah, the one with the highest interest rate. That's the debt avalanche method. I know the debt snowball says, well, we find the one with the lowest amount of debt. So we start with the lowest balance and we throw our money at that. I prefer the the debt avalanche where you throw your money at the highest interest rate instead of the lowest balance. Because in the long run, you're going to end up paying the least amount of interest if you do that. Okay, so you've got a high credit card. That's where you throw any extra. You throw that towards that credit card until that balance is paid off. And you can go to sites like unbury.me or unbury.us, plug in your credit card balances, all your loan balances, the interest rates, and hit either Debt Avalanche or Debt Snowball. And it'll tell you how long it's going to take to pay off your credit cards and all your other loans. And you can say, well, what if I put an extra $100 towards it? How how much is that going to shorten up the length of time? What if I put $200 a month more towards my debt? How much will that shorten? You need to have a visual representation. You need to have a goal. You need to know where you're going and how long it's going to take you to get there. And you don't want to add to your debt in the process. Okay? So you, otherwise, you're just going to get discouraged. You're going to think, I'm not making any progress here. I don't know how long this is going to take. You know, for some people, it might take seven years, ten years. It's a long road, okay? So then what do I do? I've paid off my first credit card, the highest interest. I'm going to go what? To the next highest interest. I'm going to take whatever I was throwing at this debt that's now paid off, add it on, and throw it at the next debt until I reduce that. And I'm going to throw all that, okay? Any buffer that you've created in the process of lowering your expenses, it doesn't go out to anywhere else. It goes towards your debt. Okay? And it's it's a long process. It may take you a long time. Okay? And there's um, many resources available for this online. But if you go to that unbury.me or unbury.us, those will help you. So I go through this process. And there's a lot more details about this. Uh, There's an illustration of it in these notes. I just want to get through all that. Another question that came up, well, how do I prioritize? If I know I've got this debt, I've got one job, full-time job that I'm working, I can't seem to create that buffer. Maybe if I get a second job, that would help. Well, you may need to. It's like, well, what what about the priority of my family and ministry? You may have to step back for a time from ministry. Don't cut out time. You know, don't completely cut out your family. You cannot abandon your family. But there may be a temporary time where you say, you know what? Dad is going to be gone during the evenings for a while because dad has made some foolish decisions. And dad has got to get us out of this debt. So, maybe, okay, you're going to deliver pizzas at night. You're going to get some type of job on Saturdays, some type of extra income to pay this thing down, but it's a temporary situation. And you're taking whatever income you're earning towards this debt. Now, I understand there's different spectrums. Some of you may have just a little bit of debt. Others may have just uh, an enormous mountain staring you in the face. But the process is the same. So if necessary, you may have to get second or third job. Because, again, there's no magic formula. I've got to have more income than the expenses. I've got to create the buffer so that then I can take and throw towards the debt. There's just no magic bullet. It's just numbers. That's the way it has to go. You know, counsel with your... Pastor or Bible study leader about the wisdom of how much time, how long. Because again, you do not want to abandon your family, but you may need to step back from ministry a little bit, from some extracurricular activities to take care of this, to pursue this. Does that make sense? Okay. Number 10, hold fast. Don't use credit cards during this time. That's what got you into the situation. Start paying with cash, checks, ATM. All right? If credit card problem is, is a problem for you, then get rid of them. Get rid of your credit cards. I like to say you should perform plastic surgery and cut them up. Cut up the plastic. So this is just a just a broad sort of path to get you on the way to reducing or eliminating your debt. And there's a lot more details in there, but that's the basics. And as you get out of debt, become a liberal giver and a conservative spender. You know, and don't, don't keep working the second job if it keeps you out of ministry and takes you away from your family. Remember, that was temporary. Don't come to rely upon that income either. That was for debt reduction. It was for a purpose, for a reason, for a, for a temporary amount of time. But you've got to then make the commitment, I'm not going back into credit card debt anymore. I'm not going into this paying consumer debt anymore, paying all this interest. So that is just a, a general overview. All right? And you've, I've gone over these. I included these in some of the notes, the non-negotiables, non-negotiable principles of credit card usage. So follow those rules as well, and that's going to help you. Let me go through some uh, other questions here, and I'll probably um, address investing a little bit more as well. Okay, so this is along the lines of investing, and maybe some of you have heard about this. I hadn't heard about it before I received this question, but... Someone asked, what do you think of online trading, trading academy? Those of you who maybe listen to KKLA have heard that advertised on there. And so I had to do a little bit of research. I'm like, well, online trading academy, what is that all about? Well, if you approach or get a basic understanding of approaches to investing, there are basically two approaches. There's fundamental analysis and technical analysis. Fundamental analysis will look at a company, look at their balance sheet, cash flow, profits, earnings, what's the projection. They're looking at the company and evaluating the strength of the company. Technical analysis doesn't care what company you're looking at. It's just looking for patterns, historical patterns. You've seen all the charts. You know, the 50-day moving average is falling below the 200-day moving average, and that's a self-signal. Well, this online trading academy is more of the trying to teach you the technical analysis, the approach to investing, where you're looking for patterns. I remember when I was in my 20s, and uh, I, trade, I, I signed up for something like this. But this is really expensive from the quotes that I heard. You know, anywhere from you get in, and uh, they give you a little tidbits, then they... Reel you in, okay? That'll be five thousand dollars for our exclusive training. Oh, and you passed through that? No, we have our super exclusive training for twenty thousand dollars. And once you learn these principles, it's like teaching a man to fish for the rest of your life. You will be able to earn unlimited amounts of income. So I I, I fell for one of those in my twenties for commodities trading. I had a little bit of extra cash and. It was a lot cheaper than this, believe me. A lot cheaper. And so I'm thought, okay, I'm gonna learn about commodities trading. I'm gonna trade futures and I'm gonna trade, you know, wheat and gold or silver or whatever the commodity is and I'm gonna buy options and and so I learned some of the basics of that technical analysis. Thought, oh, I've got a sure one here. It's got all the right, it's got all the right signs, the pattern is great here. All right, I'm gonna buy a, a contract, I'm gonna cover it with an option, and we're just gonna make a whole lot of money. It just it just went the exact opposite direction. Like, but how could this be? I followed all the the signs and I, I did the formations and got the head and shoulders and Well, I lost that money, and it was a good lesson for me. I was still single, not married. Um, Good lesson, learned my lesson. So I'm more of the side of of fundamental analysis. Certainly there are patterns, there are historical patterns, but there's no predictability to the future when it comes to analyzing stocks and uh, doing trading. How much time do we have, Dr. Neal? we no. good? When do you want to finish? <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll probably... It says 8.30 in two minutes. All right. I'll wrap it up before too much longer. But uh, fundamental analysis is, is looking at the companies and actually looking at the data and understanding from the ground up how a company is functioning and working. And that's, that's not certainly not a guarantee, but you're looking at substance. You're looking at, at companies that way. So at our firm, we tend to follow more of the fundamental analysis of how we choose our investments. So the Online Trading Academy, I would say avoid it. You're just going to be throwing your money away. You can go to the library and check out probably tons of books on technical analysis and learn these basics. Or you can learn them online, YouTube videos or whatever, if you want to understand these things. Don't waste your money on some type of online trading academy like this. Um, Another question, and I'll see if I can, how many more I can get here in like two minutes. So um, is it wise stewardship to allow Uncle Sam to use your withholdings each year and then get thousands back in tax refunds? I would say you're basically giving, if you have too much withholding and you're getting a very large refund at the end of the year, You're giving a free loan to the government. Now, for some, that may be the only way that they save anything. And they get that tax refund and think, oh, the government's giving me so much money. They're just giving your own money back to you at 0% interest. It's your money that they withheld. Okay? Not the wisest thing. I always do my W-9 every year and do a new W-9, see if I need to adjust my withholding. And to make sure, I mean, last year I was like, I think I uh, got a $4 refund. I'm like, yes, did it just right. Got the refund. Didn't have to pay anything. Didn't get this large refund back. So I think it is better to adjust your withholding, get it to the right place, to where you're getting all your money that you've earned, and you're giving the government only what is really necessary to give them. Let me just briefly touch on investing. I could really launch here, but we need to understand as stewards that if we are going to invest for the long term, invest in such a way that is wise. Number one principle for those who are in the real estate industry, what's the number one principle of real estate? Location. What's the second one? Location. Third one? location yes in that order what about investing anybody diversification 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 you must diversify yeah do not put all your eggs in one basket There is wisdom in diversification. There is wisdom in exposing yourself to a wide spectrum of stocks, bonds, cash, maybe even some precious metals, things like that. You need to be well-diversified. You need to understand risk-reward. Okay, What is this? This is volatility. This is risk, up and down. Which of these two is more volatile? This one, right? This is volatile. This is more risk. This is the up and down of the waves. You've got to know how much risk you can handle and how much risk you should handle. We need various amounts of risk in our exposure, in our diversification. Okay? But be wise with the amount of risk you take. Don't go so far to that the end of the spectrum where you are basically gambling with such high risk that you might as well go to Vegas because the odds are the same with the investment you're going to put your money into. Okay? (coughs) Always have a goal in mind for your investments. What am I investing for? What goal am I trying to achieve? That's going to help you with the question of whether you're hoarding or not. What goal do I need to achieve? What level of income do I need in my retirement? We talked about retirement, right? Retire the car and off you go. You continue on. What kind of goal am I shooting for? What am I aiming for? That's going to help you with the amount of risk you should take, the amount of diversification you need. All right? Very basic, I know, but you just have to remember that. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. You need to assess your level of risk, how much you are willing to take, how much you should take, how much you can take, and then aim towards those goals. All right? I know I could continue on and on and on, but uh, um, that's the best I can do in the time I have. So hopefully that helped I know I really wanted to spend time on that debt reduction because I know that's a big issue for a number of men and their desire to get out of that. So I do want to thank you for the last several weeks, just allowing me this privilege to be up here and to share with you from God's Word and and from a practical standpoint. So, Dr. Neal, I'll turn it back over to you. you.